night and the 80s all over Patreon exclusive interview with the star of Silverado, Better Off Dead, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, Amanda Wiss. And now, your host, Scott Weinberg. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another bonus episode of 80s All Over. This is Scott Weinberg. Unfortunately, for the first time, my co-host, Drew McWeeny, is unable to participate tonight. Nothing urgent, nothing dire, just got held up at the last minute. And while we we miss Drew, uh, I will try to channel his spirit and pose some questions to our guest that I hope he will appreciate. Uh, So let's get rolling. We are here and very excited to introduce Miss Amanda Wiss. Hello. <laughs> oh, now when Amanda, I didn't rattle off your your um, I didn't rattle off your credits because of, for a specific reason. I am so curious about stuff like this. But when you run into fans of my approximate forty-ish uh, older uh, <laughs> age, what is the film that most fans uh, show love? Which are the ones they love the most? Um, I would have to say it's it's sort of a trifecta of of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Better Off Dead, and Silverado, um, and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. and and all right. Let, well, we were. We, I was going to jump right into Fast Times because it, it must feel great to be uh, such an integral and great, uh, wonderful part of this film. But we have to go back one film, and I would love to have you just. Think back if you could and give us a little bit of a recollection <laughs> on a little film called Force 5. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Okay. What did, what did um, you – because you had already done tons of television by this point. So what what did you learn on Force 5 about being a film actor? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, first of all, it, it, it had sounded so interesting because it was directed by – um, the director who directed Inner the Dragon. And mm-hmm. I am a huge, my little, my guilty pleasure is martial arts films. I love martial arts films. And um, I was so excited. And I'd taken Taekwondo as a kid. And I was very excited um, to do this um, movie. And um, it was, let's see, I've always thought if I found five people that had actually seen that movie and liked it, (laughs) I, I, I would actually watch it. So I've only seen parts of it. I was so young. How would you describe the plot to somebody who, if if you were, if somebody said, what is force five about? Okay. Force five is about, um, a Senator, I believe whose daughter gets kidnapped Mm -hmm. and is in a cult. And the cult, um, and so Force 5 is called in to rescue her and save the day and get rid of the sort of Sun Young Moon sort of character. And then a whole bunch of mayhem ensues and many, many, many martial arts fights. Yes. And um, and um, and the, the Moonies all wear these white sheets with a bull head on it. And, and it, it's very... Um, low budget looking yeah and um it's hilarious it's actually hilarious and um it is a fun b movie it is a fun b movie from robert klaus but i think richard norton was in that movie as well i think Mm -hmm. i'm not sure i've ended up working with richard norton a couple times played ezekiel and you were credited as mandy i was because (laughs) i i was um 
I obviously joined the Screen Actors Guild when I was very young, and um, that was my name. And yeah. uh, my dad took me down there and signed me up. I really had no say in it. <laughs> I was so. Well, it's um, refreshing. I, I think that, yeah, I don't think he even realized my full name was Amanda. I think he just signed me up with what he called me. Thank God he called me Mandy. God knows what he would have signed me up as for Screen Actors Guild. Well, it's refreshing but, to see that an, an, an actor who built a big, uh, an impressive body of work looks back on their first feature. Sometimes they're a little bit uh, cringy or embarrassed, but you, you think uh, you were grateful for Force Bob. You dug it. I, yeah, I mean, I, I cringe a little. I mean, it's, of course. It's a, it, it wasn't like I, I my first movie was like a Spielberg film or something. Right. But the, my intentions had been good because I, I knew, I, you know, even though I knew who Robert Klaus was and I was mm -hmm. like, this has potential. You know, I was I was ever optimistic. And now I know that's not true. If it's not on the page, it's not going to be anywhere. Right. <laughs> so after, after that, you did, of course, more TV and then you just when when you got the script for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, did did you immediately realize that it would be something special, or did you think, hey, this seems like a pretty decent teen comedy? I'd like to do this. I knew it was special. For one thing, it's just it was such a good script, and the dialogue was so good, and the story was. I mean, I, I you know, it's it was literally our age that it was happening, and um, it, the story completely resonated with me, and I I, I knew that it was. I knew that it was a good script and it had the potential to be something really fantastic. And then um, when I met Amy Heckerling, you know, she's just such an amazing light and force. And I thought, oh, this is this is this is going to be cool. And then as we started filming and my agents at the time, you know, they were like, you know, this is this is going to be the next American graffiti. And so a lot of people were telling us that. So I think, you know, we we're like, wow, this is going to be the next American graffiti, which in a way it turned out to be the next Very, American graffiti. So, yep. yeah. So I, I think, think it was sort of, of ushered the, in that way. It is. It, 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 I'm sorry. I spoke over you. I apologize. <laughs> uh, uh, I um, think that Fast Times at Ridgemont High uh, is like the midpoint between American graffiti and Dazed and Confused as far as really <gasps> yes. insightful, really well-written, well-directed, great ensemble. A lot of the actors went on to do a lot more work, and even the ones who didn't yeah. are still really good. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm curious to know, you're a, a young actress just getting into film, and you're now faced with this, uh, a great script, and a, a, a woman director. And you must have just, I mean, did that seem like it was like different or novel to you? Or like, wow, I can't, Is that was that new? Was that the first time you'd work with a, a woman director? It was the first time I'd worked with a woman director, but I was still so young that I thought, oh, this is just it. I'll be half men, half women directing my movies for the rest of my life and all my TV shows. And um, and she's amazing. And she was just such, she's such a great role model. And uh, I'm huge fan of Amy Heckerling as a person and as an artist and a director. And um, the sad thing, though, to leap forward is in my entire career in TV, film, and stage, I've worked with exactly six female mm. directors. And I, I just think that that's tragic and horrible. And um, partly because th there's just no balance and, and it, it just brings an, an, a different perspective, vibe, and feeling to have both sexes equally contributing to the, you know, to the medium. Absolutely. Oh, I yeah, couldn't so, agree more. And, yeah. you know, you can't help but wonder uh, if, if a woman director, especially one who is as uh, sensitive and funny as Amy Heckerling, may 
it's inevitable that her perspective would bring something different to a quote unquote teen sex comedy. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think the, the yeah. proof is in the pudding right there. Just watch the film. I agree. I agree. And, um, and not that there's, you know, that's the great thing is that a good director, male or female, mm-hmm. it's just, it's such a joy and a treat to work with, but the whole entire industry would benefit from having a balance. And, yeah. and it's just, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting, I'm a big advocate of women in film, um, uh, in all areas of contribution for that exact reason. It's not that somebody's better, it just creates balance and it gives, it adds to the painting in a way, you know what I mean? It adds to our overall visual of what we go to the theater to see and, 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 it might make us feel something different. And so it's good to have that balance. Yeah. We need different perspectives. You know, it it doesn't, I mean, like you could hand that screenplay to 15 different directors of different race, color, gender, age, uh, financial income, and you would get 15 different movies. And, you know, we need a a bigger diversity of, of, uh, I agree. Filmmaking representation. Let's talk a bit about Cameron Crowe. Uh, yes. What was he like? Oh my gosh. Okay, oh my God. Wait, no. What is he like? Good God. <laughs> what a horrible first way to all, pose that question. First what? of all, he's still with us. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what? He's, he's great. He's so smart and funny and quick and interesting. And I mean, have you seen his new show, the show roadies? It's mm. phenomenal. It's Not phenomenal. Yet. He's just in my queue. And I got to meet, um, Nancy, his wife, that was super exciting yeah. to, Talk you know, she's so stars. beautiful. And I mean, I, I, it was my first, I'd never met like a bona fide, huge rock star before. And, um, they're, I just think they're one of the, I just think they're super cool. One of the most interesting, interesting things to me about fast times is how all the key characters are both likable, but also kind of like flawed they're they're not, none of them are purely sweet and none of them are purely rotten well few of them are purely rotten what did you, <laughs> what did you bring to lisa that was like part of you you know what i think all characters have an element of being filtered through me that's what makes them unique when i play them but i would think like lisa i just tried to i didn't try to make her i didn't try to do when you read it you know she she's not you know, like the nicest, sweetest girl. She's like, I want this. And, you know, you're not doing this. And she was just very, you know, she was clear about her little direction in high school and how she saw her relationships. And I just wanted to make it truthful that, you know, teenagers can be snotty. They can be loving just like humans at at any age that, um, so I just tried to like allow her to be like the perfect little hamburger worker girl who's mm-hmm. dating the guy, but now realizes, you know what, for my life plan, I need to do A, B, and C. And that doesn't include us the way that is happening right now. And just, just let that be that that's who she was and people could like it or not like it. But so I think it made it kind of fun that she was just this girl who had a plan, like had a very specific life plan about, you know, what she was going to do her senior year. <laughs> yep. She was just organized. She sees what adults very- are doing and that's kind <laughs> of like, now well, let me ask you this: Does it feel do you do you feel any kind of kinship or or connection when you happen to be walking through a food court with your family and you see a, 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 a young blonde girl behind the counter and she's really doing a good job and she's being very very professional and fastidious? You're like, hmm. I know. I want to yell, keep it up, Lisa. Yeah. Uh, 
No, you know when I have the feeling, and this is so funny because my character didn't work at that hot or corn dog on a stick or whatever. The girls wear the little bike shorts and the striped hat, mm-hmm. and they do that almost. It's almost like a sexual dance while they're mashing the lemons and making the lemonade and all that. That's when I have the biggest flashback, and I have no idea why because I didn't work at that. So I I worked at All American Burger, um, but um, anyway, so that that's my mall story. Yes. How does it feel? <laughs> uh, well, we could ask this about your next feature as well, but how does it feel? To like, I'm glad that I was young enough to have seen Fast Times at Richmond High in the movies. That's how I'm like, yeah. I'm like, it's a little badge of honor that I'm just old enough to have seen it in the theaters. And so I can <laughs> only imagine how an actor must be like, wow, you know, I, I did some stuff I'm really proud of. But to, to, to have that feather in your cap must feel great. You know what? I feel, you know, I feel really fortunate that for whatever reason, that that those like those four or five films early on have turned out to be somewhat iconic and have provided me with this beautiful legacy that you know it's that I just sort of you know won the lucky hand at getting and um, I mean I went to drama school and I showed up delivering the goods at the audition and stuff but I so did a bunch of other people and I just feel really really lucky and I think like out of like fast times. The interesting thing with that cast is that, you know, where I, I'm a journeyman actor and I always have been, I'm, I'm an attractive character actress. And so I've, I've always had a career, you know, in TV and going back and forth. But every single person in that movie either went on to, you know, uh, huge stardom or is a journeyman actor, mm-hmm. except for the two or three people that left acting to go on and be successful in something else. So, like, there's literally... Every single person in that film has continued on in a, you know, fulfilling, successful manner in the career of their choice. And I, I mean, that's, I it's just very uncommon. Be, it's it's wildly, very uncommon. It is wildly uncommon. To, there are films that, of course, will launch a handful of, uh, of careers, but not to the level of like the American Graffiti is the apt comparison. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, just just kudos to you. I've loved the film since I was young, and you know, Lisa was always to me one of the more interesting characters because she's not uh, archetypal. She seems kind of like a normal girl. The other ones are yeah. the the other characters are a little bit more stylized, a little bit more archetypal and or iconic. And she seems like the girl uh, the girls I knew in high school. You yes. know, and yeah, uh, that are just yeah, that are going. They're going to go to college, and they're going to get married, and they're going to have mm-hmm. their kids, and they're going to live a really. They're going to raise good citizens, and I, 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 I think that's you know. But you don't play her like Babs from Animal House. She's not a snobby, snooty. You know, mm-hmm. she's you know she's in her own business and her boyfriend's business, but she's not mean or nasty. And you know mm-hmm. that that that's always a nice you know because it's not broad is not interesting. Nuance no. is interesting, you know. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I I like to try to find nuance in things, and and also because I do a lot of you know. I mean, I do a lot of supporting characters or, you know, girlfriend of or wife mm-hmm. of, and it's, it's fun to find something that, that, you know, you help carry the football. So you're not like trying to steal the play, um, but, and you're still moving the ball down the field, but you know, you have an interesting gate while you're running with the ball or whatever right. it is, but it, it's still keeping the story moving forward and helping to tell the story. And I think um, characters like Lisa, you know, they, it's, you, you you can kill it by trying to do too much or make it stand out. And, and I, I always have found that the best way to approach any role is to try to sort of unzip my skin, surround myself in those 
circumstances and immerse myself in it and then just let the honesty happen, you know, and, or, you know, find the most truth in that without judging it. Like, Ooh, that's not nice. Or, Ooh, that's too nice. Or I just try not to ever judge it. You know, I try to like, let it be. And, you know, and, and I've often played unlikable characters and you just, Oh yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get there. (laughs) And you're good at it too. We'll get to that. Um, So then we move from an, it was an instant hit. Uh, Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. Fast times. Then you went back and did a ton of, lot more TV. If you were watching television in the early eighties, 81 to 85, you saw Amanda Wiss probably two nights a week. I'm sure you had gotten other horror scripts before. What's your first impression when you read the screenplay for A Nightmare on Elm Street? If you think the movie is scary, the script is like reading a Stephen King novel on steroids. Uh, not to compare Wes and Stephen King, just like I'm trying to picture it as a kid. Well, like, it's the, a fair, the, the that's scary, a fair comparison. I think that's the a scariest, fair. <laughs> okay. Um, the scariest book, because at the time I hadn't really seen much horror. Like I'd seen a couple of old black and whites on TV. Um we didn't have a television a lot while I was growing up. So every now and then we would have one and I'd watch some black and white old horror movies that were on on like Saturday afternoon or something. Um, I'd never gone to the movie theaters to see one except for Jaws. And so I'd seen Jaws. And um, when I read the script, I mean, I literally was like barely able to, I was like, this is like reading the exorcist or something like where you go, I'm so scared. I could just put the book down, but I'm going to keep reading it anyway. Um, and that's how I felt. And I was like, this is amazing. And so at the time when I read it, I was reading for the role of Nancy, the lead character in the Mm -hmm. movie, in case people don't know, um, because that's what everyone was reading for. And then he was going to decide. And so I read it. And um, when I went in um, to meet with Wes, I was like, he was like, tell me what movies you've seen. And I said, well, you know, honestly, um, I've seen Wait Until Dark. Not really a horror film, but it scared me. Um, I've seen a couple amazing black and white. I love old movies. Then and I'd seen Jaws. And I said, but I've read and I rattled off all the scary books that I had read because Uh I was really into it. I started reading thriller horror stories when in like the seventh grade and um he's like okay well that's all this is and um so we talked a lot about uh literature that we both liked he's was the smartest human see that's the thing if you yeah to to people who might not know appealing to Wes Craven's intellect even if you did it by accident Amanda is the way (laughs) in because Wes Craven by uh, I've met the man a few times rest in peace like he was like the coolest college professor that you had, correct? Exactly. A hundred percent correct. Yeah. And funny and witty and charming and intimidating and all, all kinds of, an incredibly vibrant and big uh, persona packaged in a very quiet uh, man who, you know, you know, he, he really adhered to that. If you don't, if you're not going to enhance the environment by speaking, don't talk. (laughs) And, um, so I read for Nancy and um, then I get a call back and I'm like, great. And then it's, but it said, oh, you're getting called back for Tina. I was like, Tina. And so I went back over the role of Tina and I was like, oh, you know what? This is really cool. Yeah. And so I, I, I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot to do with this. And so I, I went in and he paired me with Heather right away. So I think he'd already decided um, that he liked the two of us for those roles. And so Heather and I read, and then he had us do a couple improvs and then they brought the, he brought the boys in and the four of us improved. And I'm not kidding. And they told us on the spot, we had the job, which never oh, happens. That's great. Yeah. Now, now, I've, we, now, I've not an actor, but I've not, I've never heard that happening before. That's a great story. It was. And, and Heather and I are still the best of friends. And well, actually 
and and as Robert as well, I travel with Robert and his wife a lot. Um, we're just like one big crazy happy. That's what I've noticed family. that about the Elm Street crew is that for the for the not even just the original, but as the sequels, there's a lot of uh, friendships and and still long lasting friendships mingled throughout that whole franchise. Yeah, and you know, and I didn't work in any of the other films, but Lisa Wilcox is a dear friend of mine. So is Tuesday Night, um, and you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. And when we all see one another, we're all very happy and. Um, you know, it's Wes. He just—I don't know. I, I think people like Savage Steve Holland did it. Amy Heckerling. There's mm. something about their ability to see what's going to work, and it's some sort of chemistry thing as well um, that I think uh, works on camera and off camera. Well, and, yeah, and I believe I believe Wes Craven was involved in the casting in pretty much all of the sequels. So while he, he might yeah. not have been that involved in the shooting, I know that he's always been really good. I mean, just look at Scream for Cry. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. He's just amazing. had a great he's always he always had a great eye for casting. Let me. Did yeah. you ever did you realize when you were reading the script or when you saw the film that you were the Janet Lee in Psycho? You were the misdirect, you know? Yeah. Your character seems like the lead for about a good 20 minutes. And yeah. I think it's a very clever, maybe not a direct Hitchcock homage, but it's a very cool misdirect in a way where it's like, oh, I'm into Tina's story. And then it's like, Zerp, nope, not Tina. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and it was intentional. And, um, you know, Wes described it to me. He's like, you're the red herring. You're the red herring. That's a, that's so every move we made while we were filming and I did know I was as Janet Lee because I had seen Psycho. I, I right. saw it before we started filming because he had mentioned that. And so I was like, well, I'll do my research. And, um, uh, and at the time you would go to the film library. This is so long ago. You know, you didn't, things weren't at your local, you know, like, you know, you had to, you actually had to put out some effort to go do research back in those days. Like, mm -hmm. um, I played Trisha Nixon in, um, a mini series and it wasn't like you went to Google and find out things. I had to go to the big library. Oh, right, and, right. No, you'd and, actually have and, to research first ladies, yeah. Trisha Nixon. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And you'd have to go, there was a big place in Glendale at the time that had, that's where all the movie research was done. And you'd have to make an appointment and it was just crazy. But um, anyway, whenever we were rehearsing my scenes or, or setting up the shots, it was all to make Tina as full as possible um, as real as possible and keep it really grounded in a sense of, um, well, I, I just want to say truth, but so that people were dug in because. Right. Well, it, I mean, so she's in you, throughout the opening credits. She's yeah. following her with her boyfriend, you following her story. And then it really is a great misdirect. And it's because, oh, this actress, uh, you see that in a lot of movies where it's like, oh, I've seen this actor. They wouldn't be there if they weren't the star. I've seen that face before. And yes. it's like, nope, she's the second girl, not the first girl. Trick yet. Um, and what I love, uh, I, I, I have to tap to pick your brain on this one. OK. The bit with the super long arms, that image gave me nightmares. And I'm wondering when you had those super long arms on the set, did they look creepy or were they silly? Well, you know what? It's interesting because that particular, they didn't look silly. Um, but, you know, that whole sequence when we were filming that was, it was, we filmed it in an alley in Venice in the middle of the night. People had already yelled at us to be quiet because I was screaming. I mean, so we, we walk out to shoot this scene. I'm barefoot, which is, yeah. that was. That in a nightgown. <laughs> yeah, on my part. You have to picture the time. Um, Venice wasn't gentrified as it is now. The alley was strewn with needles and glass and things. And, you know, the crew 
picked everything up as best as possible. So the whole, the whole time, you know, we start this thing and I'm like, well, I'm going to end up like with a laceration or some disease or like, I'm going to, this is not going to end well for me doing this scene in this alley. And, um, as we were filming and they were coming out with those long arms, the Marine layer started blowing in and this real organic mist started filling up the alley with the, the, the big, um, the lights that they had out there, everything was like blue and, and fog laden. And so it, it, because I was there and I was watching the puppetry of it all, I wasn't scared, but I mm-hmm. was like, that is going to look amazing. Yeah. On you film. knew. Yeah. 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 It just, it was just going to look amazing. And, and it was technology meets mother nature meets middle of the night. I think the, the way the air moves in the middle of the night, I just, yeah. I don't know. Like it just adds, you can feel it on screen. So I'm not yeah, really looking tactile, at something about, practical, yeah. tactile nature of things like CG yeah. and digital can do a whole lot, but you know, you can't really fake the way like wind bounces off and brilliant latex makeup effect. You know, you just yes. can't fake that. Uh, but let's talk about another amazing effect scene. Let's talk about your death scene in Elm Street because let's do it. I cannot imagine how difficult that must have been for you. Why don't you just run down like how long it took and what kind of rig they had you in? Did you bruise up? How long did it take you to get over it? Because it's a really creepy, but it's also technically phenomenal uh, yeah. sequence. Sequence. Thank, thank you. Um, well, I think we shot it for better part of a day, um, and it was there was they built a room inside a huge soundstage. Um, so the room was on basically. Uh, uh, like a barbecue spit. There's a word for it. Might escape my mind. Uh, um, a gimbal, I think. A gimbal. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, there's a really simple word for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has to do with the fugitive. Um, so they, they literally there were grips outside that like turned the crank and the room spun around. And so I was everything in that room was nailed down, shellacked, completely immovable. And then there were two like airplane chairs that they had attached to the wall where the cameraman and whatever actor was in the scene would sit strapped and harnessed. And so they actually went around with the room. I was always on the floor as the room turned. So what we had to figure out was how I could propel myself so that it appeared that I was being dragged. And so I, you know, I was gymnast growing up and I was like, I can do that. Yeah. See, that's um, the hard part that if people sometimes miss in that moment is that, yeah, it's the amazing, the special effects that they're spinning the house around her, but you still have to throw yourself <laughs> across yes. the room, across the floor, it, tied up, covered with blood. And, you know, so we were doing it bit by bit because once uh, huge amounts of blood are introduced, like with a low budget movie where we can't go back and like scrub down the walls and start over and stuff. And so, I, you know, I was so young and so Wes and I really, you know, I was like, well, what do we, what do we want here? And part of it was, it, if you really look at it, Tina is fighting Freddie for the entire first 20 minutes of the film. So she's mm-hmm. really like the first person to fight Freddie. She fights him pretty much the longest in a one hand-to-hand combat. And, you know, I look like I'm like 15 and it was really meant to be like, shocking. And uh, it was a shock and awe kind of shot. Mm-hmm. So we really worked hard to... I really wanted it to look like I was fighting for my life. And, and, and so we would go around and then I ended up getting vertigo. Like halfway through, we were, all of a sudden I couldn't tell which way was up, which way was down. I completely was like, oh my God, get me out of here. I, I can't, I, I mean, I literally thought, oh my God, I'm falling, I'm falling. And 
I was obviously on the floor, but my inner ear had gone. Yo, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Wes came in and he pokes his head through the window and he was talking. He goes, no, look, you're on the floor. And then as we're talking, he went, whoa, I'm completely disoriented. Because when you're standing in the room and the bed is standing mm-hmm. over your head, you're, after a few minutes, your brain says, oh, duck, the bed's going to fall on you. Or you're on the ceiling and you're going to fall. So whichever way your brain processes it is not, is not good. It doesn't feel good. And so he was like, all right, we're just going to get through this. And, um, and so we just did it and we, we just did it. And I think that, um, my confusion of like what was going on, I think actually adds to the scene because I was in actual distress while we were filming that. And, um, and then, you know, I was just out of drama school and I really wanted to be immersed in it. And I think that between Wes and I, his genius of coming up with it and working with me. I just think we made such an amazing little piece of horror um, that's gone on to like be on the Academy Awards a couple times and things like that because it's just this amazing piece of film of his genius, I think. And, and, yeah. you know, and I rose to the challenge. I, I wanted Absolutely. to play the hard whole cast did. And you could see, you know, you could see just in that scene alone that you're working your ass off, forget the, you know, the hard, you know, it's not easy to also just to play an old act convincingly, but let alone, <laughs> let alone throw yourself around a rotating room at 16 years old and knowing, and then knowing that pressure of, if I screw this up, I'm going to cost them probably there's no way yeah. to literally no way to, to reset this. So yeah. if, if it was I'm, very stressful, yeah. So, but I mean, hey. not stressful, like going to war or something, but for oh, my little no, but young brain, young it was actor, stressful. You want to do a yeah. good job. And if you, this is like your big, big death scene and yeah. it's so elaborate, but no, the, the, well, let's just close this question out with this. When you saw the final film cut together, yeah. what did you think of that sequence? Oh my gosh. I thought it was amazing. Like I, and and it wasn't, I just true story. I didn't see the movie for very long, many years after it was made for various reasons, uh, which are hilarious. But, um, I, so I was just like, Oh my God, it's so brutal and it's heartbreaking. Like, and the end part of what Tina adds to that movie is it's, it's really heartbreaking because how, how much she wanted to live. And I think that, it's it's like an archetypal character of like the the unloved child who had created a family of friends to make her feel loved and then in the end none of them can get to her and so yeah. she ultimately dies alone and unloved like she felt Do you know what i mean in a, and i think it's actually incredibly heartbreaking it is it's very um, tragic the best horror films often uh, really do give you that oh that poor young boy or girl that they, they didn't you know like that's what really sucks you in is oh i kind of liked her she didn't deserve that yeah. that's a shame and then you get pulled further and further into the story if you were just yeah. obnoxious bitch girl it'd be like good see ya who cares <laughs> you know like, nobody cares um, well and i think i think the whole story the whole nightmare on elm street story i i stealing this from somebody that i saw on a panel say um the best horror is always intrinsically sad always mm. and the the horror movies that have lasted they're intrinsically sad um i think yeah and, i think that's a and, fair assessment that's a good yeah. point yeah i just really like that and it's it speaks to what you just said it's because as human as sentient human beings in order to invest in the story we have to be feeling something i mean unless you're going for like yuck yucks and like oh look they they've killed 70 people with a machete that's hilarious or whatever that is but that's not 
being invested in a story. That's more of a right. thrill or a, or, you know, like let's, let's, you know, go drink a bunch of beer and go watch no, you a, a really actually care for these guys. Like you care about yeah. Rod. And in yeah. most movies, Rod would just be like a complete body. Who cares? Like get him killed. Exactly. And you like, you care about all of these kids. And that's what part yeah. of what makes nightmare. So the original nightmare, in my opinion, you know, a, a legitimate eighties classic or a, Forget 80s. It's just a horror classic. I, I would Thank love you. to, you know, the show is about you and we are celebrating your uh, best 80s output. But what I would, if you don't mind, I would like to throw out some of the people who were in Nightmare. And if you could give me just like your first recollections, your first thoughts of these people. OK, well, you already mentioned the the, the wonderful Heather Langenkamp. You guys are still oh, friends. She's one of my favorite people. Yeah, she's amazing. Did you uh, did you work much with Mr. John Saxon? I didn't. But through the years, we became friends, and but I knew who he was, obviously. Of course. And can I just tell you, he's agelessly handsome and sexy and debonair and lovely and smart and has such amazing stories. He's worked with everyone from Brando to, oh my gosh, you name it, and um, just a true gentleman, talent, lovely human being. Yeah, he is a real true favorite among um, like the movie geeks out yeah. there. Uh, uh, when you mention a John Saxon, like people throw out 30 different movies. He's got yeah. a great voice, a great presence. He can be funny. He can be mean. He yeah. can be sweet. If you yeah. don't know who John Saxon is, go dig up some of his work, people. He's amazing. Yeah. He's uh, amazing. Also, also amazing, Ronnie Blakely. Yes, who had just been nominated a few years prior uh, for her performance in the movie Nashville. Mm -hmm. um, a beauty, she was beauty. Um, I didn't work with her very much. I know her much better now than I did back then, but it's talent, beautiful singing voice. Um, it, still recording amazing music. Really? And also has, yeah, and has amazing stories. You know, she traveled with Bob Dylan. And I mean, she's, you, you really get a slice of that beautiful, mm. like early, late 60s, early 70s music pie when you sit and talk with her. It's really, she's, it, boy, lucky to get to pick the brains of these people like John Saxon and Ronnie Blakely who had these tremendous experiences in life, you know, especially during, I think, an era where so much interesting cinema and music was happening. This was Johnny Depp's feature film debut, I believe. It was. It was. I think it was. I think it was his first acting job. Period. And you yep. know what? Um, the funny thing is, it, it, he's exactly now who he was then. He, he dresses the same. He's just a cool, sweet human being who works really hard, and um, he worked very hard on the. And of course, we have to ask. Give us one fun anecdote about the immortal Robert Englund. Oh my gosh. Okay. Best storyteller ever. Great raconteur has, you know, done such amazing work. And I was excited to work with him because I grew up at the beach and was a surfing girl and he had been in one of my favorite movies, Big Wednesday. And so I was like, oh my God. And everybody else was like, V, V, V. I was like, I don't know what V is, but he was in Big Wednesday and I cannot wait to meet him. And, um, he's, just tells the best stories and he's filled with energy and he's very curious and he's always digging deeper. Like if I move my hand this way, the light will hit this. He's always looking because he's a stage actor. So he's always working on the physicality of bringing it alive. And, you know, and, um, he's just very fun. I adore him. Um, like I said, really a great storyteller. And, and I, through the years watching him, you know, he's so become, he's in this, monster pantheon now of like the all-time great you know 
personally, I don't really love how jokey Freddie got in later years, but I always appreciated how he jumped into the character with both feet. You know, horror fans out there, if you've not revisited the original Elm Street recently, please take this conversation as inspiration to do so. Now, we've covered here, Amanda, that you seem to fall into ensembles really easily. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, epic ensemble. We've just established that your cast in Elm Street is younger veteran actors, up-and-comers, uh, soon-to-be giant movie stars. I mean, and now we go to Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado, which is... <sighs> All right. Were you a fan of Westerns when you read this script or were you just like, this sounds like fun and Lawrence Kasdan is a genius? Like I said, we didn't have TV a lot when I was growing up. But when we did, obviously, the old old timey TV for you youngsters out there, there was like Saturday and Sunday movies. And then late night at night, there would be movies on. And often they were Westerns and old World War Two movies and black and white horror films and things. So I've seen many Westerns, many, many, many. And um, the I read the script and I was like, oh my God, this is epic. This is amazing. This is, I'm, I'm blown away. And so, um, a true funny story. So I go to meet with the casting director, Wally Nasita, um, at Warner brothers. And that in the script, they describe my character, Phoebe as like, I forget the words they use, but it's in my head. I had it that they described her as a model or something like that. So, I, you know, only a 23-year-old would have this sort of ignorance. But I, I walk in and I went, I went, you know what? Let's just save us both time. I'm never going to get this movie. I'm not a supermodel. So I just wanted to meet you and tell you how much I like the script, but I'm not going to waste your time. And she just looks at me and she goes, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're going to stop talking. <laughs> you're going to get up. You're going to leave my office. You're going to stand outside my door and you're going to knock. And when I say you come back in, you're going to come back in and we're going to start over. and You're going to read the damn script. (laughs) And I was like, oh, all right. I mean, I was just so like, let's just save each other time. So I go out and I was just standing out there and I was like, how long do I wait before I knock? It was hilarious. And so I knock and she waits a bit and she goes, enter. (laughs) So I go in and she goes, are you ready to actually audition now? It was very, very funny. I read. Of course, I'm great. I, it was such a fun part. And so then I got called back. I met Lawrence Kasdan. I found out before I even got home. I mean, we didn't have cell phones then, but it was on my message machine when I got home that I received, that I got the part. And um, it was just filming Silverado was hands down the most amazing experience I've ever had on a film set. Film set. It was four months in New Mexico in the winter in the snow, in a beautiful town built for the movie with extraordinary actors that I'd seen everywhere from on Broadway to my favorite films. And, you know, and then Lawrence Kasdan, hello, like, oh my God, Empire Strikes Back. And ah, it, I was like, gosh, I hope they haven't made a mistake. And when I get there, they're like, we didn't mean you. <laughs> no, and you know, I think there was probably a nice, re- a real excitement around this project because for the last five, four or five years about, the Westerns had kind of vanished. And it seems like Lawrence Kasdan was reaching into his bag of tricks and saying, all right, I've worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars. I'm allowed to make what I want now. And what yeah. I want is a fun, colorful, megastar wattage, tongue-in-cheek, colorful characters. Yeah. Not not blood and guts, but, you know, still kind of violent. But, you know, I love Silverado. It is one of the films. It is one of the films that made me as a kid who didn't know anything about Westerns go, 
huh, if the guy who made Raiders in Star Wars loves Westerns this much, I bet you there's something there. Yeah. Um, you, you know what? I, yeah. I agree. And, and it's, it's epic family drama and the it just everything about it, freedom in the Wild West and the score loyalty. Is, the yeah. score is amazing. It's so beautifully shot. Yeah. Uh, John, John Bailey, the cinematographer, Bruce Broughton, the composer. You're good. You remember everybody. That's a pro right there. Uh, <laughs> now, when you saw this on opening night, your eyes must have been like saucers. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, it got they, the premiere was at... Um, Gosh, I think it was at the Chinese theater. And I mean, that was just like, ah, I grew up in LA. Like who doesn't want their movie like premiered at, you know? Oh my gosh. And then the, at the premiere party was on the top of the old holiday Inn, which is now whatever the, what? I think it's where they put the mall there at the corner of Highland and mm-hmm. Hollywood Boulevard. It used to be, there was a big rooftop. The whole night was magical and people were dressed up like sort of saloon people and stuff. And, um, you know, just filming that movie because they had just finished The Big Chill and Kevin Costner had been cast in The Big Chill. He played the guy who had passed away. They, Lawrence Kasdan ended up cutting him out, wrote Jake for him in uh, Silverado. And But what they did every Saturday night after rap, there was a Motown dance party and it circulated. Sometimes it was at Lawrence Kasdan's house. It was Jeff, Jeff Goldblum and um, I mean, yeah, Jeff Goldblum and Kevin Klein had rented a house together and it would be at their house. It'd be at the first AD's house. So we all danced all night long, and then Sunday was the day off. And we just, every night after filming, they'd rented a little tiny theater in Santa Fe, or these little offices, they put up a little theater. Um, we all went to watch the dailies every night. It oh. was a, just this really incredibly cohesive, loving it sounds like a, It sounds like literally the- It was magic. If you were to script the perfect shoot, that would be the, 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 the what you would write. Like It was amazing. And Brian Dennehy- took me and a, a few of the other younger actors aside and said, soak this up, take this in. It will never be like this again. Uh, one this of the most, not was, how he, it is. was he as lovable in person as he is on the screen? Because I grew up just, you know, like Brian Den, he is like everybody's great uncle or grandpa yeah. or dad. And I can only imagine he was like that in person. He's amazing. I mean, you know, he's a formidable, formidable man. He's very, mm. um, Large, but, but <laughs> yes, and 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 has an incredibly strong personality, and is really mm-hmm. clear about what he wants. I adore him. I, first of all, I'm friends with both of his daughters. Um, we all ended up in a theater company together years later, and I, I realized like that I'm blonde and look like one of his daughters. You know, so he was always incredibly sweet to me. As he, he was a nice man, and I'm trying to think. God, Todd Allen is also in that movie. I, I, I didn't. Still, I, I think I overlooked John Cleese. I don't know how I did that. John Cleese. John <laughs> Cleese is in it. I know. I was just trying to think. There's like there's so many people, and through the years, obviously, I'll go. I'll be on a set, and somebody will say like, "I worked with you on Silverado," and it's like, shoot. Because the truth is, there was the two towns. There was Silverado and the other town, and with mm. a little bit of that crossed over, you know, like I met John Cleese, and I. But you know, we just weren't. I, very, I don't yeah, know, like, there's very distinctive plots in that movie. Yeah, who did but you work we, with most most consistently on it? Um, it would be Lynn Whitfield, Linda Hunt, um, Jeff Goldblum. Kevin Klein and Kevin Costner and Brian Dennehy. Right, you were um, mostly the, the. You were mostly involved in the slim subplot. Exactly, because yeah. I was all in the, the I was all in the saloon. But right. because I was there for months, on my days off, I would often go out to the set and just watch. Because I, I mean, I was it was such a fun set to be on and learn. I learned a lot about the camera working on that film. And but it, it you know what, it 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 was the most magical 
film experience. It, it sounds it, honestly, if you ever write a book, Amanda, it should be yeah. about your time on the set of Silverado because it, it sounds like it was beautiful and really formative and influent and impactful. It on was. It. Uh, it was. And I, I learned a lot about behavior on that set to work with so many big names, um, Roseanne Arquette, just everybody, um, uh, you know, and it's just that everybody's very professional, you, you know, they showed up, everybody knew what they were doing, they'd all practice gunslinging and riding their horses and stuff. There was no, like, I'm just going to play this naturally or I'm good looking and I'm going to make it, like, it's it right. just, like, amazing professional that, that's what Lawrence Kasdan's set seemed to be from from articles and interviews that I've read. It, Lawrence Kasdan seems to work in a very warm and uh, open, friendly environment. and that's, He does. And he laughs and giggles. And Jeff Goldblum and Kevin Klein are hilarious. Hilarious together. They're very good friends. And their whole mission in life was just to keep Lawrence Kasdan in tears giggling. Uh, day, lots of lots of cross-pollinated chemistry in that movie. Like, yes. you know, so many like, oh, I didn't have no idea that Lynn Whitfield and Jeff Goldblum would strike chemistry together. But there they go. Uh, I know. It's, it's so great. Oh, my God. Now, I she's, go watch she's amazing. She's great. I'm not surprised she's become a big star because she, yeah. she steals. She's not in it very much, but she steals moments very easily in that movie. Uh, oh, and wait, did we say Danny Glover? Oh, yeah. Danny Glover. I mentioned him at the end. They're the See, that's the cool thing about Silverado is that. The, at the time, it was Kevin Klein, Scott Glenn, Kevin Costner, Danny Glover. And it's like, these are the big four. But if you go beyond the big four, <laughs> there's literally 20 other great actors in that movie. I 25, know, 30. Yep. I agree. <laughs> so now we switch gears completely. You have played uh, uh, in the films that we've covered, mostly cool, mostly nice girls. Not, not always, you know, but pretty pleasant people. Now we switch to a character that a lot of young <laughs> men know. And dread the icy ex-girlfriend. That is an iconic character for teenage boys of like that girlfriend that you had two weeks ago, and now she is turned off like a like a faucet. Now she doesn't even want. She's like oh, virtually your enemy. And not only that, but you you have to play it for broad comedy too, which is not it's not. I don't think it's easy to be a bitch for broad comedy. Let's talk about Better Off Dead. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so much fun working on that movie. Um, come on, John Cusack and Curtis Armstrong, forget about it. And Diane Franklin and I have stayed great friends. Um, in fact, I introduced um, Heather to Diane while I was filming, and the three of us have stayed friends. We had so much fun. And you know what? It, it literally, it was amazing. First of all, Savage Steve Holland is a genius. And he is, um, you know, that script was hilarious. In fact, the script was one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. It, it's even funnier than the movie. I was thinking um, the script must have been good for them to give an, to give for them to give a project to a man called Savage Steve Savage. Holland. And it's exactly. become one of the most adored cult comedies of the 80s without question. Uh, why do you think Better Off Dead is remembered so well, uh, there's lots of broad comedies, but why do why do people still quote two dollars and why do and the whole you know can I ask Beth out thing? Why do people keep <laughs> using that? Because you know what I think he struck some archetypal chords about high school teenagers and and life, and I think that the going to the the struggles of puberty, the you know the, like even the darkness of John's character trying to kill himself. It, it, it touches on the archetype of how difficult puberty and entering into that phase of life, like where you're in high school and all of a sudden you're having to make decisions about asking, like you're, you're, you're 
starting to meet up. And so it touches on these really resonant things that, you know, I think are still true. So people can still relate to them. And I also just think that there was an exaggerated version of someone from all the groups we knew in high school. You know what I mean? The, the kind of mean girl, the, the, the cute yeah. girl, for the, the exchange student, um, Curtis Armstrong, you know, like the, the, we would have called him a field rat. Um, yeah. the job no, you're right. Every character is like a rubber band stretched out to the most extreme degree. She's yeah. the bitchiest ice queen. He's the sleaziest slob. She's yeah. the sweetest exchange. You know, like, you're right. Yeah. That's an interesting point. The humor of it is able to just echo out because we have all met those people to some degree. So it's super relatable for one thing. And John is incredibly charming. And so is Curtis Armstrong and Aaron Dozier was gorgeous and hilarious. The three of them together were, they should, they should have just like had a camera on the three of those guys all the time. And, uh, for was a that a fun films, shoot or was, oh, I mean, cause he's a first time director. So you might think he might be a little bit unprepared or a little bit overwhelmed, but it seems like it, I mean, just by going what's on the screen, you can't really tell. I'm guessing it looked like you guys had some fun. Oh, we had a blast and he was incredibly prepared and possibly because he was young and wanted to make sure everybody knew he knew what he was doing. It was storyboarded and and shot listed Uh and his crew was so supportive and, and he was very, you know, he was able to keep the set fun, but he was, you know, still the captain of the ship. And and as far as getting things rolling and um, we, you know, we spent a lot of the time up in, I think it was Snowbird, Utah, mm-hmm. um, at this place, at these condos that had a tram bar. It was called the tram bar. Why I remember that. But after filming, we'd go and um, dance to uh, the jukebox, like at night. Like we'd all just like dance and, you know, uh, we were so young, but we were old enough to be able to like buy a beer if we wanted to buy a beer. But nobody else was at this resort. So we'd kind of taken it over and there was only one one of the producers who was older, I mean, because Savage Steve Holland was our age, basically. So it was just like, you know, hey, let's go make a movie. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. It was a huge, you know, studio crew, but it was all so young and filled with life and hope and happiness. And um, uh, and it was very organized. And, and I, it was just it was just a fun. It was fun in a different way than Silverado. I mean, Silverado was just so epic. Uh, off it must have been. Must have been Fine. a crazy whiplash for you to go from New Mexico and then what a month or two or three later you're on a on a mountain skiing. Yeah, you know what? It was weird because I actually did those. I did the, the order was I did Nightmare on Elm Street in August. I started Better Off Dead in November through December, and then I I started Silverado in January. And so I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing! Like I I was like, this is amazing, and these characters are so diverse and. Um, so better off dead was just, we giggled the entire time and we've all stayed very good friends. And, um, I see Savage Steve as often as we can. I mean, he's married now with a, I think he's, you know, a million children and, uh, <laughs> he, he directs a lot of things for children's programming. Yeah. He does that. Directs. I like produce a lot of animation as well. He keeps busy. Yeah, I'd love, love to see busy. him, love to see him come back and do something like this again, but <laughs> whatever, too. whatever makes him happy is, is fine by yeah. me because he made a handful of movies. They also one crazy summer and, yeah. uh, uh, how I got into college. I like all three of them. I, I like that they're subversive and weird in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, in a, t- in a genre that's generally kind of generic. I like that his, his stuff is odd. 
I, I agree. And I think that's also part of the thing that uh, one of the reasons that it hits maybe on a level you're not even we're not even aware of. It's that little bit of subversiveness, but it's done really smartly. Mm-hmm. And it's um, yeah, like it kind of piques your interest in a lot of different ways. You, and he's really good at that. Even his series Beans Baxter was like that. You know, it's what do you think? Uh, oh, Eek the Cat. That was Savage Steve as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I want to thank you so, so much. And I promised my listeners our listeners, good Lord, I promise <laughs> our listeners, I'm so egotistical, that I would ask you one lingering question about a film that was released in 1990. <laughs> and um, I, I did not know that this was a cult favorite until I got on the internet. But it is. You mentioned this film on Twitter and Facebook, and people go nuts. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the horror film known as Shakma. Oh my God, I don't know. But this is the <laughs> funny thing. There's there's two movies, Force Five and Shakma, or and a couple other that I'm not going to mention because it'll go crazy. But um, that you go, oh, it's okay because they're just going to die, but then they don't die because now everything is resurrected in the internet. But yep. um, Shakma <laughs> was sent to me by uh, the Parks Brothers, who I'd done a film with the previous year with Andrew Stevens and Mary Crosby. They had a lot of money. Um, not very, not great scripts, but they got really fun actors to come do their movies. And so I, they sent me the script and they said, Roddy McDowell's attached. I was like, all right, say no more. I'm going. Um, and Christopher Atkins, who's a doll. And, um, really it just, I was terrified of the baboon. Terrified. It is not a dull, predictable killer monkey movie. It is a weird, unpredictable movie. So (laughs) if you want to dig up, please dig, please watch the other films we've already mentioned. But once you've depleted all those and you need just a little more of Miss Wiss in your life, dig up Chakma and have a good time. Maybe drink a beer while you watch it because it is nowhere near Fast Times or Silverado or Elm Street or even Better Off Dead. But it is a fun B movie. Oh my gosh! And if and if people want to see something new, I have a, a fun, scary yes. movie out called The Id. The Id. I would what, love who, for who people to see The Id. It's my role of a lifetime. Tommy Hudson directed it. Um, he produced the Never Sleep Again documentary about the Nightmare on Elm Street oh, franchise. Um, and an amazing role. A nice, scary movie. And then um, I have a couple other movies coming out. Um, and I'm about to shoot a fun movie called The Orchard, which I'm super excited about. So there's Great. some fun things happening and. Um, I'm so grateful you wanted to come and, and have a chat with me. You are 80s royalty. And oh. whether uh, it doesn't matter if you had uh, like retired in 1990 or if you went on to win an Oscar, you will always be uh, the, an 80s icon. And we are just <gasps> very flattered and elated to have you part of the show. Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. Miss Amanda Wiss, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.